Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast of The Invisible World of Jeremy Jones, where it's not so much about how to live your best life, but how to show up and live your life. Thanks for joining. Wow. Well, here we are. I've officially doubled my episode count. It's amazing. That's right. Welcome to episode two. So this is a real thing now. It's official. I must say, I was really looking forward to this episode. This one kept rising to the top of my idea list. And like all these episodes, they are by me, for me. And this one I've been itching at for some time. So let me start with a story. Years ago, I owned a few fourplex buildings. Everyone should be a landlord at least one time in their life. There's such great lessons. I got a call from a tenant that the back wall tenant had been smoking, and whether they were inside or on the porch, either either way, they would have been breaking the rules. The smoke was lofting through the vents, and they were concerned about the secondhand smoke, especially because they just had a new baby, their first. They were probably a bit more jumpy than usual. My wife took the call from these upset tenants. Then she called me at work to help figure out the conflict. Can you guess what I wanted to do about it? Bingo. Nothing. Avoid, avoid, abort, abort, abort. I mean, could you imagine one tenant is already upset. Then I have to call another tenant and tell them they can't smoke. It's against the rules. Probably they would get mad and smoke twice as much, forcing the other to move out, and then I'd be out that money, so then I'd for sure have to kick out the smoker tenants, and then I'd be out that income too. And there's no chance I could have afforded that. I mean, I didn't buy this property on a shoelace budget. I bought it on a floss budget. I I didn't even have enough reserve cash to cover not even one vacancy, not even for one month. I even had a tenant who made more money than I did. So I told my wife, hey, let me, um, let's see, uh, we should, uh, you know what, I'm at work, so let me get back to you. That was my first step of conflict avoidance, put it off, hope it works itself out. So then I get home from work and my wife says over dinner, so what do you think we should do? Me. Oh, uh, gosh, it's, uh, it's been a long day. Maybe we should just sleep on it. Yeah, avoidance level two. Next day, I state, you know, we should just tell the tenants to notify us again if they smell anything in the future. Say sorry that it happened. Maybe it was a fluke thing. Who knows? Maybe it was someone in the building next door. This way, I didn't have to actually deal with any uncomfortable conversation with my smoker tenant. Perfect. I thought it was genius until, you guessed it, later that week, the tenant calls back and says, for sure it's smoke, and they snuck around and peeked and identified the smoker as my other tenant. Shoot, shoot. This time I didn't have a choice. I told them I would call the tenant, and there shouldn't be any more problems. So I pick up the phone, I call the smoker tenant. We were both very nice, cordial. It was an easy conversation. I reminded them of the rules, and they said, listen, we just had a friend over who smoked. There shouldn't be any more problems. Of course, deep down, I knew they were lying, but I didn't want to rock the boat. Yikes. Choppy waters. They agreed to follow the rules, saying any smoking would be done off the property. What started as a healthy conflict, it was now going to start turning unhealthy. Another week went by. I continued to avoid the problem, which takes energy, by the way. But I guess out of sight, out of mind is, well, it's frankly out of touch with reality. I kept hoping, please, please don't call back and say there's a problem. I don't want to deal with this. Sure enough, a week later, the tenants called back complaining of smoke. So this time, I called the smoker tenant and said, absolutely no smoking on the property. None of your friends, no cousins, no dog smoking, nobody. And my smoker tenant agreed and said this time it was the building next door that had a few smokers, and the smoke from that property was drifting to ours. It was confusing. Another week or two went by, and we didn't hear anything. Good. 
Good, this problem will eventually fade. All I needed to do was avoid it as much as possible. And that's right about when I received a certified letter from an attorney. Sent from my tenant who said, due to the lack of action on my part, and yada, 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 and the continued smoking on the property and some state bylaw real estate jargon and yada, yada, they were going to break their lease, feeling no longer obligated and were moving out at the end of the month. I about fell over. I mean, I had no cash to cover their rent and pay the mortgage. Here I was getting this scary-looking official attorney letter. and Now, at this point, finally, finally, I did a couple random drive-bys myself at the property. And sure enough, right away, I, mean, I saw my tenant only a step outside her door, lighting it up, puffing away, no worries. And, of course, what did I do? That's right. That's right. I kept on driving through, baby. I didn't stop and roll down my window and say, Hey, what you doing? That would have been too much conflict. Better to keep avoiding it so it can get bigger and bigger and more frustrating to deal with. Great plan, right? Maybe even somewhere along the way I get lucky and the problem quietly slips out the back door. A few days later, a third tenant called and said, Now they're smelling a lot of smoke lately claiming they saw the back tenant smoking it up, too. My wife called me at work. Hey, there's another tenant complaining. What are we going to do? Look, all this wasn't my finest hour, because then I said, Well, uh, gee, listen, um, hmm, I'm at work, so can we talk this over during dinner? But she was on to my ridiculous, ineffective avoidance, right? Because when I got home over dinner, I was about to deliver my next line and say my old, hey, we should just sleep on this. But she told me, I mean, how, how are we going to make the mortgage with this tenant moving out? And then the other tenant might move out. Uh, I said, well, let's think about it. And she said, no. I mean, thinking about it has just made things worse. I need to take care of this. Right then, she picked up the phone. She called the smoker tenant and said, in a respectful yet assertive way, that she had to move out due to breaking the rules of smoking on the property, that we even saw her on the porch ourselves. That we've even, that we've been getting so many complaints, the conversation still wasn't going anywhere. So then my wife had to explain and, and uh, tell her that we'll, we'll have to get the sheriff involved. Uh, the tenant was crying it was really unfortunate. They were penitent. They wanted to stay, but they couldn't. And it was an uncomfortable conflict. And finally, they agreed to move out at the end of the month. The problem had ballooned far bigger than it needed to be. I mean, two tenants moved out, causing unnecessary stress, tension, and money problems for everyone involved. And how did it escalate so drastically to the point of possible sheriff involvement, of receiving certified letters from attorneys? of a month of back and forth and of tears. and Well, that's what happens when you avoid conflict. It grows. My inaction and avoidance caused both tenants to move out. It went from a healthy enough conflict to an unhealthy conflict, needlessly. If I would have changed my attitude when I got the very first call, if I would have just drove over there and talked in person with both tenants, explained the rules and consequences of the lease, and really faced the problem square on, it probably could have um, been worked out and both stayed happily. The tenants would have uh, stayed there. No one would have been outran or had, had to move. It would have been easier in the long run. As a side note, um, I've noticed a trend that people who actually make it big in real estate, they're the ones who effectively negotiate conflicts timely and wisely, who embrace the conflict. There's tenant issues, money and financing issues, development issues, zoning conflicts, investor conflicts, finding good tenants, helping tenants live together in shared spaces, constant repair and maintenance conflicts, changing door locks, um, lighting pilot lights, fixing leaky toilets, freaking coronavirus conflicts. Actually, come to think of it, that's the same pattern I've seen for people who have a successful marriage, a successful friendship. I hurt you. You hurt me. That's okay. Let's work it out. Let's find solutions. 
Same to be said for running a charity, for growing a business, for advancing a career, for handling chronic health issues or an addiction or for school and university. I mean, what is school if not repeated intentional conflicts and problems that you have to solve out for? I mean, did you meet your homework or avoid it? There's conflicts on the homework you have to solve. It's not about how well you can avoid conflict unscathed, but how well can you solve them? Yeah, it's interesting. Jesus always talked about by the fruits you may know them, like how a fig tree bears fruits. In school, uh, we get fruit, right? We get feedback. We actually get grades on how well we solve the conflict of the assignments. At work, we get compensation that reflects our problem solving. Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, he solves really complex problems. I still don't know when I push a button how I get this trivial toothbrush or a duck whistle or fake grass to appear on my porch the next day. Governments, cities, countries, they're all solving problems. And I've learned instead of being concerned about rocking the boat and choppy waters, just use that same energy and become a better sailor in any sea. For this episode, the lesson from the sun this week, this, this is why does the sun shine? Have you ever thought to ask that? Why is that thing just sitting and blazing, shining so beautifully? How does it do that? What makes it shine? This episode asks that question. The sun's been going strong for 5 billion years, and it's estimated to go another 5 billion years of steady light. How is this happening? How does the sun do this? What's the trick? It's not like it's just plugged into a space outlet somewhere. There's no mega Tesla battery powering it. Something's happening to produce this light. If we were to jump on a special rocket ship together and travel in and zoom in close by the sun, we could see, you guessed it, what causes this energy is conflict. There's heavy pressure of continuous conflict at the sun. It makes me ask the question. So if the sun is under all this conflict and we get benefits from this conflict, could it be that (gasps) conflict is good? Is all conflict bad? Is all conflict good? It got me thinking. You know, from a distance at sunset, wow, I mean, the sun looks like this lovely, friendly, cute little ball of gas, of warmth, and safe, steady light. Uh, I mean, it's the benefit of looking at something 93 million miles away. When you zoom in, it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen the cover of like a National Geographic Kids magazine. It has that close-up profile pic of the sun. And what does it look like? It looks like, wow, really chaotic, wild ball of volatility. There's solar flares ripping off left and right. There's also uh, these CMEs, which are coronal mass injections. There are large explosions of plasma, magnetic field from the sun's corona. There's sunspots and scars and solar storms. This is like a wild, freakish ball. And if there's one word that comes to mind, it's conflict. How is it the sun keeps shining? Well, it's because it's constantly negotiating this heavy, continuous conflict. Like in the first episode, we talked about how the sun is mostly hydrogen, the most common element in the periodic table. Well, it's under conflict from the second primary element of the sun, helium. It can be summarized by lighter elements, in this case, hydrogen, forcing together with the heavier ones, helium, At this collision, a serious amount of energy is fused and dispersed. This type of fusion can only occur when you have a few important ingredients, like extremely high temperature and unruly energy pressure. There's continuous collision after collision, and scientists call this nuclear fusion. Nuclear meaning at the very atomic or nuclei level. Let's try to size up about just how powerful this is. If you were to fuse all the hydrogen that you could find in, say, just one gallon of water, think about it, next time you grab a gallon of milk from the fridge, you're holding that gallon. Nuclear fusion is so powerful. With just that one gallon, by nuclear reaction, you could power New York City for three days. 
Through a series of collisions, the intense pressure of the sun's core continually fuses four protons together to form helium. And with every fusion, energy is released into the stellar interior. Millions of these events occurring each second produces enough energy to push back against the force of gravity and keep the star in balance for billions of years. The released gamma rays follow a torturous path higher and higher through the star until eventually emerging from the surface millions of years later to form visible light. Right? This can't continue forever. Eventually, the hydrogen is depleted as an inner core of helium builds up. For the smallest stars, this is the end of the line. The engine turns off and the star quietly fades into darkness. Uh, thanks to uh, KieranVoid.com for some research there. I mean, uh, that's really how all this ends. When there's no more combustible creative flow of energy on the sun, when the conflict runs out, that's when it hits the end of its lifespan. Now, is there a difference between healthy and unhealthy conflict? I like the definition that unhealthy conflict is when someone is trying to intentionally cause pain or suffering, or you are trying to cause suffering to someone else. And most often, sadly, the pain and suffering we try to cause is against ourselves. So let's dig deeper. What kind of conflicts are you experiencing right now? Honestly, the blueprints for my master plan for handling conflicts was just to avoid it. Avoid all conflict. Avoid whatever feels uncomfortable. What happens if the sun avoids conflict? Right? That, that would be game over here on earth. What about if you avoid the conflict with your partner, your sister, your friend, your brother, your, you know, or the conflicts that we have in our own invisible world? constantly avoiding and blocking out the feelings that overwhelm and frighten us and confuse us. Doesn't it just get bigger and make things worse? What if you avoid that conflict of which bill to pay or that nagging health issue? Question to consider today. Might, just might, any conflict actually contain benefit? And how do you have healthy conflict? A healthy conflict like the sun's nuclear fusion is a collision of two elements, two opposing interests. It's the intersection of a decision. could be something small like, you know, do I want to have cherry ice cream tonight or a root beer float? Should I let my kid do the sleepover or other things like, should I quit my job and start this business? Should I get divorced? Should I end a friendship? Uh, should I invest a large portion of my money into this medical vaccine stock or this startup business? Should I forgive this person who wronged me? Should I move on? So on. Take a time out. Pause, push the pause button here. And identify what's a small healthy conflict you have today. What's a bigger healthy conflict you have? These are all uh, healthy conflicts where no one's really trying to intentionally hurt anybody. So even in these healthy conflicts of decision-making, still we experience some level of pain and discomfort, irritability, stress, confusion, annoyance, fear. Even when deciding between two great options, we might feel this discomfort. I just don't know. Should I get the blue car or the red car? Should I get the BMW or the Mercedes? We still experience these emotions that kind of tickle and taunt us and eat at us. And most of the time, we just want to get rid or avoid that feeling. Let's look at some examples from nature, some examples of, of healthy conflict we want. Now, we already looked at the sun, right, for an example of conflict. Think of healthy conflict as a dear friend, as here to help uh, show the way. Like the sun, it sheds light on things. Conflict illuminates. Let's think of it like that. Instead of following the invisible illusion that conflict is dangerous, that discomfort is bad, we can create a new storyline that healthy conflict illuminates. How powerful. Now, if, it does, if that's what it does, then I like in the thesaurus, there's a synonym for, uh, uh, for conflict. The synonym is engagement, to engage. Like, might we engage with our collision of opposing interests? 
so that it sheds light on the path forward to illuminate our world of decision-making. When we have illumination, we have clarity. So if that's true, if I really get illumination through conflict, like, wow, I mean, I want to stop avoiding conflict and realize that it's here to help. I, I must stop the avoid, avoid, avoid. And I should come out and open the door and greet it and say, conflict, come on in. But shake hands, let's talk. Sit down over there in my good chair. Put your feet up by the fire. What can I learn? Why are you here? What can you illuminate? Let's keep pulling on this thread and look at some more examples, all right? So stay with me here. Um, all right, have you ever planted a garden? Now, I'm not a great gardener, but I'm always intrigued by the process. We take... We take this seed, and what do we do? We bury it in dirt. Well, thanks a lot, the seed says. It has no sunlight. It's trapped with dirt all around. In fact, do this exercise. Next time you're on YouTube, pull up a slow-mo video of a seed growing. It's so fascinating. The seed is buried in this conflict of dirt. It germinates. It sprouts roots. And the roots fight through the conflict, through the friction of the dirt. They don't avoid it. They don't say, oh, well, this is really uncomfortable. I mean, I'm trapped. I'm buried. There's no sun. I'm going to just avoid this and wait until it goes away. No, the seed greets the conflict. They need it. It's the way forward. They need this conflict. Without being buried, they wouldn't have a place to put down roots. So when you watch the video, you'll see the roots start growing up, but then it realizes there's not enough friction if they keep going up and out. So the roots turn back down, looking for tougher, thicker, more, more conflict soil. The roots grind deeper and deeper, and only then, when the deeper roots and the darker, uncertain friction, only then does the plant have the stability to then grow up. It grows down first, rooting in the conflict, and then up. Solidify your roots first. Spending time with the problem. Dig through it. Spend time with the person. And then once the plant breaks the conflict of the dirt surface, it finds the sunlight and then experiences exponential growth. Some Asian bamboo trees, you might have heard this. I mean, it takes them five years of root development, just slammed, buried, five years in the dirt. But then when they break through the dirt surface, they grow something like 80 feet in only five weeks. Or how about we look at the largest organism in the world? It's a grove of aspen trees in the Rockies. The root systems are interconnected and run on for five miles. Those are good roots. Let's look at another example of conflict in nature, throwing up. Yep, throwing up. What's happening when you throw up? I mean, you have conflict in the stomach. Historically, if anybody knows me, like I've hated throwing up. It's awful. It's disgusting. The convulsions, the acidic sting through your nostrils, so much conflict. I always try to avoid it as long as I can. I, I curl up on the couch. I breathe deeply, hoping it will pass. Avoid, avoid, avoid chucking up at the toilet. Oh, man. Now, interestingly, whether it's me or someone I know, Anytime you go through that conflict of throwing up, universally, I hear afterwards, oh, yeah, that sucked. But I feel better now. The conflict of throwing up removes toxins from our body. The conflict gets our body to a better place. So now I finally change my perspective. I say to myself, hey, listen, body, if you need to throw up and get rid of these toxins, man, sure, go ahead. It's healthy conflict. It'll still be uncomfortable and frustrating. You know, the burning acid will still sting, but it will bring comfort. What else? Can you think of some? I wish this podcast was interactive because I'd love to hear you throw out some of your ideas. Uh, let's see. What about one of the most important conflicts we have? You know, the grandbaby of them all, bringing a life into the world, having a baby. You have all kinds of conflicts here. Sometimes you weren't expecting the child. Sometimes you are. It brings money problems. There's health risks. You know, the mother's health, the baby's health, they're at risk. It's in jeopardy. I mean, the mom is in her most painful conflict. She always says, that was the you know, hardest thing I've done, but it's brought the most reward. 
in this conflict from the baby perspective, he's like, oh man, how am I going to get into the world? How am I going to get out of here? I'm trapped. You know, I got to go out through there. And the mom's thinking the same thing and she's throwing up and her body changes. And it's just, it's so much conflict, but there's also so much reward right now. It's the middle of 2020. So later this year, we're going to have the presidential debate, a debate, an argument. We want these candidates to fight it out, to talk it out, to debate, to push, to pull, to mix it up, to challenge each other. We're going to give them the toughest challenges and questions and scenarios to see, like, we, we want there to be good conflict between these candidates so we can, like the sun, have these healthy collisions that will shed light and greater and greater illumination. Uh, also happening right now in 2020, at the time of this recording, is the SpaceX space mission launch. All right, it's been nearly 10 years since astronauts have been launched into space on American rockets from American soil. And these astronauts, they're faced incredible conflict to get into space. They have to break gravity. They have to make sure their trajectory is accurate. They face the possibility of getting lost in space. You know, what if you have a serious medical condition? What if the rocket explodes or malfunctions? Yeah, here they are, you know, they're floating around, they signed up for this conflict, their families are experiencing great conflicts right now, like, are are these guys going to make it back home safe? What about all the investors who put billions of dollars in investment into the launching program? There's all this this discomfort, I mean, what if it goes wrong? Yet everyone here willingly chooses this conflict. They're even intentionally looking for more conflict. How much further can we go? Can we set up a colony on Mars? Oh, there's that conflict. There's no water there, but hey, we can figure that out. Another one um, from sports, right? And the gladiators in the Roman days to boxing to Olympics, professional sports. Well, we could spend a whole episode. Heck, I mean, we could have a, a whole decade-long podcast just on the conflict of sport. Why thousands pack stadiums. Why millions watch on TV. We want to see the collisions. We want to see how the human spirit and the soul emerges. The best investors out there, they, they handle the chaos. The best surfers, they're looking for a big conflict wave. So many lessons from surfing, right? They have peace with that non-peace. Uh, we're going to come back to this idea later. Um, surfers, they know there's this huge wave coming. And they think, hey, we can either ride this and have a good time, or we can get crushed. We're going to do later on a dedicated episode on surfing. But for now, let's just, let's just touch on it briefly. And we say... There's this huge conflict, this wave, and that they're getting beat down and beat down by these waves. I remember, I remember surfing with my buddy, you know, wiped out. He took a board right to the butt, cut through his wetsuit and made it bleed. And, uh, but surfing can also be pretty fun, right? New storyline. Conflict can be fun. See, I'm, the surfers make it fun. Uh, there's a lot of conflict there. And I'm not a great surfer. I, mean, I remember when I lived in L.A., the first few weeks, I went every morning with a buddy trying to learn. I jump in the shower after I get back from a surf session. I have cuts and bruises over my body. My wife was like, whoa, that's, you know, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. But I'm going back tomorrow morning. Like the sun, when we have conflict, we're alive. The aliveness of like the plant struggling for the sun and water. When winter comes, trees lose their leaves in the conflict, and they come back in the spring stronger, taller, brighter. We too can come back from any winter we are facing, no matter how oppressed, down, difficult, alone. Spring comes. Jeez, man, sometimes it takes a while, but it comes. Right, there's more conflict in surfing. Let's say, let's say you caught the wave. You had a good ride. Things did go well. Not all gloom and doomy, you know. You crushed the wave. Then what? Then the wave is going to crash and roll to the shore, and the ride's going to end. And for some crazy reason, some crazy reason, we turn away from the safe shore, and we paddle back toward the rolling set of uncertain waves that are coming in, back towards the possible sharks and... Uh, who else, you know, uh, we could get pummeled just by heading back out to the lineup. But we paddle out. We paddle out. I love the Bible phrase uh, from First Peter chapter 4. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened to you. But rejoice. All right, David and Goliath, 
David's like, yeah, I'll take on that conflict. Uh, we, we must have conflict, right? All right, I think we've covered this well. There's a lot of great inspiring benefits that come from healthy conflict. You could be doing the right thing and still is stressful and uncomfortable. More often than not, it's signaling, hey, you're on the right path here. Hey, here's more illuminations. Muscle doesn't grow without conflict and pain. You have to seek the conflict. You have to lift up whatever conflict you have. Lift up the weights. Lift up the challenges. Sometimes it's too heavy. So you know at that moment, you just keep at it. You may not have the family you want, the job you want. You may have got an injury from lifting the heavy weight, but you heal. You keep at it. You come back strong. The sun doesn't shine without conflict. You don't advance in school, relationships, jobs, hobbies, investing without solving conflict. I mean, great relationships are not the ones that are void of conflict, not the ones that are overly careful, but the ones who have collisions, the ones who have successful repairs and illumination. Take resistance bands. Like, have you ever worked out with those rubber-resistant bands at a home gym? They're great. Like, they're great for muscle building and stretching, except, except for one little problem. They give us resistance. I mean, it's conflict. It's interesting. So I've been working out with these as I've been prepping this podcast. I take little breaks. I pop up. I do some bicep reps with these resistance bands. And, you know, I found a little cheat trick. When I step on the resistance band, I can kind of narrow my stance and I can create less resistance. And so they become easier to pull. All of a sudden, I'm doing way more reps than I thought. Of course, right, the trick is on me, though, because I don't gain any reward. I don't get stronger because I cheated the resistance. I avoided it. It goes back to that Newtonian law of equal and opposite reactions. For the degree of resistance I meet, the more muscle and fitness I'm rewarded. Not a penny more, not a penny less. All right, all right. I get your point, I get your point, I get it. Conflicts can be helpful. But what about the nasty ones? Right, this is real life we're talking about here, not practice. There are disturbing and hurtful conflicts, unjust and sickening ones. What about when someone sues you, someone steals from you physically or emotionally? What about when someone crosses the line and clearly it's wrong how they treated you? It was wrong what they said. You didn't deserve it. They took your money. They left you. Someone, they hurt someone in your family. They called you names. They violated your property. They gossiped about you or your kids. They hit below the belt and on purpose. Or let's be fair. You did this to them. For whatever reason, let's say you have unhealthy, ugly, hurtful, abrasive, sandpaper conflict. I mean, it's so scary and uncomfortable. All you want to do is avoid it. Avoid them. You remember it and you keep pushing it away out of your mind. How do you handle something with such high pressure and temperature? Even my tenant example earlier that I started the podcast with, even though it was uncomfortable, I confused that feeling of discomfort I thought it to be an unhealthy problem. I tried to avoid it. And by so doing, I was successful at making it much bigger. It was a much bigger problem. And emotions aside, it was really more of a healthy conflict. Right? My tenant just, she, they just didn't want secondhand smoke in their apartment. They wanted the rules that were already established of the property to be kept. Even them breaking the contract and sending this uh, certified attorney mail... They weren't trying to hurt me. Right? They were just trying to be heard, keep their baby safe. They weren't trying, you know, and well, me as the landlord, I wasn't trying to hurt the tenant the, the, that was smoking and kick them out and be mean. We just needed a healthy conversation about following the rules of the place. And sure, I've had some problems and legitimate unhealthy conflicts, some of which I caused, but I've had nothing, nothing like some other people out there. So let's take a look at some big-time unhealthy conflicts where people are legitimately intending to hurt and cause pain. Let's look so we can figure out some strategies on how to go forward and deal with those. Let's start with Martin Luther King Jr., right? 
He's someone who has been arrested undeservingly over 30 times. We must always remember, just because the conflict is difficult, just because we have discomfort, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the wrong path. Right? We could be doing right and still have that grinding, naggy pit in our stomach. It's, it's like you pick a beautiful mountain trail, and you know this trail is the right one for you. You know it goes to the summit that you want, to the views that you want. But it has steep inclines and obstacles. i got to stop and catch my breath. The pack is heavy. I'm low on water. The sun is hot. I need more sunscreen. The wind is picking up. There's logs to crawl over. There's big pointy rocks i got to maneuver around. There's wildlife to watch out for. I mean, here's a guy, Martin Luther King. If anybody deserved to kick in their spurs to be rude and spiteful, to retaliate, to kind of flex their vengeful muscles, it's this guy, right? I mean, he, he's rested dozens of times unjustly. He's beaten, roughed up. There's rocks and bricks and bottles that were thrown and hit his head, like as pictured in um, the August 5th, 1966 Marquette Park protest. Ten years before that, in uh, January 1956, his home is bombed. I mean, has your home been bombed or have you been hit in the head with a brick? Um, 1964. Four years before he died, he's the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner. Isn't that just fascinating? He's seeking conflict, and he gets a peace prize. Interesting. Peace for seeking out the conflict, not avoiding it. He's the guy running into the burning building, not away from it. He had every single reason to avoid more conflict or retaliate. Instead, he's pulling out the map with the Freedom Riders. Hey, where, where are we going to do something like, you know, it's something small, but we're going to ride a bus and we're going to sit in the white only section and we're going to do it day after day after day. He had peace with the non-peace. He traveled six million miles protesting. He spoke over 2,500 times. He wrote five books. He, he was constantly on the run. There was assassination attempts. There's fielding threats about people wanting to take his life and his families. He was seeing his friends abused and hurt and treated like animals. I mean, this guy has every understandable right to be pissed off and be abrasive and mean. And why was he treated this way? Ah, because he was seeking such crazy hallmark virtues of equality, of justice, of cooperation, of integration and inclusion. The audacity. Right, here he is striving and sacrificing for all these great things. And look, I mean, I can't even pretend to know what that kind of conflict feels like. Must have been weighty, up at night, puking hard, difficult. Oh, But we can say that he was doing the right thing. And still, it's so uncomfortable. Therefore, we can't measure if our life is going good on the basis of comfort only. It's like the hiking example. If we want to avoid the difficulty, well, then the only view you're going to see is the one from the parking lot. But what happens when we get to the top of the hike, though, right? We're looking over the view. We're eating some stale bar that we left in our bag, and we're having some warm water, and we're wiping some sweat off, and we say, oh, boy, wow, that was worth it. While handling all this undeserved conflict, both personally and nationally, let's look closer at his words. What did Martin Luther King have to say about it? There's some powerful stuff here that really changed my life. He said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. If I cannot do great things, I can do small things in a great way. And this one. I've decided to stick with love because hate is too great a burden to bear. Let no man pull you low enough to hate him. And referring to Gandhi, he said, The reason I can't follow the old eye-for-an-eye philosophy is that it ends up leaving everyone blind. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. 
Whatever matters to us in our invisible world, something big or something tiny, speak it, share it, make it visible. Just as a side note, you know, it's interesting. It wasn't until 1986, nearly two decades after um, he died, that Martin, Luther, that Martin Luther King Day was declared a national holiday. So, I mean, we see it as this national celebration, and that wasn't his experience, though, right? I mean, that wasn't until decades after. We see him as a total stud now, but for him, I mean, he was ducking cover. He was ducking hate. He was ducking these bombings. There's serious bombardment of conflict, and seeing how he spoke about love was just so inspiring to me. I mean, did you know that he was stabbed? In 1958, 10 years before he was assassinated, he nearly died by this stabbing. I mean, that's reason enough to just hang it up and quit and lay low. I'm like, listen, whew, I am done here. I'm going to rethink this protesting stuff. But he did the opposite. In his invisible world, his star, it boiled from his core. I mean, talk about boldly believing in yourself. How could he keep seeking all of this conflict willingly? over and over again, back into the burning building. Because he had a really, really big why. He had purpose, clear, vivid, relentless, clear vision. He had a dream that he boldly believed in. On YouTube, I've watched his historic DC speech in front of 250,000 and it was televised where, where he has a dream that one day this, one day his four daughters, one day. I dream that one day. It's so powerful. I have a dream. Now, which is, I mean, that's must-watch TV. You, you, you have to watch that speech if you haven't. But, um, so for you, like, you finish this, the sentence. What is it for you? What's your dream? Say it back to your phone right now. Like, I'm listening. Is it racial equality? Certainly we need that today in light of current circumstances. Is it, I have a dream that one day I can pay off my debt. I have a dream that one day I can start a business, change jobs, be an amazing parent. I have a dream that one day my family can... This is for you. What What are some of your dreams? Boldly believe in your dreams. Watch that speech. It gave me goosebumps, feeling his uh, conviction and passion, knowing he pushed all his chips to the center of the table. I mean, he was all in. In that same speech, the I Have a Dream speech, he talks about the slaves who had been seared in the withering injustice. Yes, yes, we, we need the racial equality that he referred to. And I also wonder, on an individual level, this true principle if it might have a domino application. Are there dreams you have that are withering that you need to water and nourish and encourage? Believe in them. Fight for them. Sometimes we have to protest against our most formidable opponent, ourselves. We must refuse to procrastinate and put off and make small our big ideas. We must protest against our fears, against our limits, Protest against those illusions that we talked about in episode one. Another quote from the historic speech that punched me right between the eyes was when he spoke about living on a lonely island of poverty amidst a vast ocean of material prosperity. That's so eloquent, I better read it again. He spoke about living on a lonely island of poverty amidst a vast ocean of material prosperity. And that point is true for racial and minority economic injustices, as well as on our own sphere. It made me think of times that I've felt I was on a lonely poverty island while abundance and richness skipped over me. I felt lonely before. I've been left out, uninvited. A circle of friends didn't invite me to join, to join a trip, to join a night out. A group didn't invite me um, you know, to join on a project. You know, my kid was left out of something. They bought a new boat, a freaking new cabin. They just got back from traveling in Europe while we just got back from the neighborhood park and forgot snacks. They don't have this health issue. 
let's see. What about from an opposite perspective? Let's say you're not lonely or poor or feeling injustices right now, and you're just crushing it in all areas of your life, just home run after home run. Then the other part of this is if you go sailing by someone on a lonely island with your boat loaded down with good relationships and life abundance, then the perspective is, am I doing enough to help? What can you do? What can you give? Time, money, a call, a thank you note, an idea. Maybe you have a skill or a talent, something you can give that is um, so powerful. You could give a smile. A smile, to me, always means, at minimum, hey, you're not alone. I see you. Guess how many people attended Gandhi's funeral? Over two million people. His funeral procession was five miles long. Five miles. Why? Well, he's known as Bapu for being the father of India. He's nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize five times. Let's, so let's, let's talk about Gandhi uh, a little bit here. As you know, the Britons ruled India as a colony for eons. India achieved sovereignty from Britain in 1947. I mean, if you, the footnotes here read that the Indian independence movement, I mean, it took 90 years. So it's not like it happened overnight. But it was declared sovereign in 1947. And according to the 1948 census, I mean, the country had around 360 million people at that time who had been enslaved to the Britons. In addition to the um, being a colony, in addition, there was severe religious religious conflict amidst the people in India with the Muslim and Hindu Indians fighting amongst themselves. And then during all this, there comes along this guy during the Britain rule, the religious conflict, this guy named Mohandas Gandhi. And he believes so boldly in himself, so boldly in his people that he nearly frees a half a billion people from political and religious strife. Nearly half a billion, all without raising a weapon, all by preaching nonviolence, love, standing up against tyranny, meeting, and actually often creating. He was creating intentional conflict, healthy conflict of noncompliance. It will forever go down as one of the biggest conflicts in our history. He was born Mohandas, and later his name uh, was changed to Mohatma, which means great soul. I love some of his perspectives on conflict. Turn this up, turn this up, and we'll see what the great soul says. A coward is incapable of exhibiting love. It's the prerogative of the brave. Hmm. See, when we face our conflicts with love, not spite, we're being brave. It's vulnerable. It's, dare I say, heroic. He said, it's the action, not the fruit of the action that's important. You have to do the right thing. It may not be in your power, it may not be in your time that there will be any fruit, but that doesn't mean you stop doing the right thing. You may never know what, re what results come from your action, but if you do nothing, there will be no result. Whenever you are confronted with an opponent, conquer him with love. He said, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the most uh, easily influenced for the better, is the British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, is far more difficult. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Matthew 5, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Oh, easy for you to say, huh? Like no one would, no one's ever said that to Jesus. Like, look, Jesus, you just don't get it, okay? Look, look Martin Luther, Gandhi, you guys just, you, you don't get it. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you how my spouse cheated on me. Or I got laid off or I didn't land the deal. I didn't get that house I wanted. Uh, how they stopped being my friends. And oh, and then did they put six, six inch spikes through your hand? Like, uh, 
when Jesus said those immortal words, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was after he had had the worst of it. He was already ridiculed and laughed at. He had been rejected and despised of men. And still, still in one of his last moments, he underscored his love. Like, I just want to make this clear what I'm about. I can't control what you stand for, but this, this is what I stand for. And somehow he forgave. Somehow he had peace with the non-peace that was happening to him with all the physical and emotional pain. It's like, we don't actually honor Jesus because he had this you know, noble talent and was so skilled at avoiding conflict of just being peaceful and kind. It's not like he was just sitting under a tree and meditating the whole time. Rather, he gained so much peace while being stricken and acquainted with grief, not in the absence of it. I know people say that when Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that he was referring to the Roman guards who were just following orders to crucify him and didn't understand the Christian divinity of Jesus. But I also believe he was talking about the Jewish religious officials, his own people, turning on him, giving him this rigged up sham trial, condemning him, choosing to free that Barabbas guy over him. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. If they had known better, then they would have done better. You know, you know better, you do better, like uh, Maya Angelou says. Jesus' wrestle with conflict is so popular. Christianity is now so popular. You see a cross, and it's like, oh, man, did he have some big conflicts. And yet he's called the Prince of Peace, not for how well he avoided conflict, but for his strength to rise and meet it, to rise and meet it. He even had chances with Pilate and, the, and with the Jews, you know, to just, hey, just denounce his perceived blasphemy. And he was like, no, like, to this end was I born. This is who I am. This is, this is how my star radiates. You know, this is me. I'm here to rise and meet it. Right, here's a wild transition from Jesus to, say, John Elway. John Elway's a Hall of Fame quarterback of the Denver Broncos football team. Now, football is a big conflict. People are out there smashing each other. And by design, the quarterback is the center of the conflict. Everyone on the other team is trying to tackle him, trying to steal or intercept the ball. A defensive end, their orders are, tackle the quarterback, plaster that guy to the turf, take him down. That's how they get their paycheck, right? Every game, the defense is swarming and pushing and shoving to get the quarterback, to knock the wind out of him. John Elway was such a successful quarterback because of how calm, adept, and consistent he managed the conflict. When to throw, when to scramble, when to slide, when to call a timeout. What about a sales guy? I've had a bunch of sales jobs over the years, and guess who's the most successful sales guy? Yep. He's the one who goes back into the burning building, who embraces the conflict because he knows that what he wants is on the other side of the conflict. So he must go through it. He can't go around it. Can't wait for it to clear up. So he makes the next call and the next phone call. He knocks on the next door. He knocks on the next door. He keeps swinging the axe away at the conflict, going right into it. We do a push-up. We go on a run. We do the yoga to tease out the conflict because we want what's on the other side, baby. Close your eyes real quick. No, I mean, really, close your eyes. Go inside your invisible world. See a beautiful ship with a tall mast and sails. Can you see it? Okay. A ship in a harbor is safe. But that's not what ships are built for. It's not what we are built for. Now, see your ship out cutting through the vast ocean swells. We are built to ride the seas, however they be. We find no treasure if we just stay in the harbor. We must go out and let the wind lift our souls and fill the salty spray on our face. It matters not how the seas rumble, because I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. All right, let's switch gears again and jump around. Let's jump around. Think about the story of Siddhartha Gautama, who later became known as Buddha. Peel back his story a bit. He lived in what is now present-day Nepal. He had 
He had the good life going, rich, a prince, lots of money, probably just got a new surfboat. His house had a tennis court and a pool. He had a ski cabin up in the Himalayas. All his bills were on auto pay. He didn't have to work. He had a chef. And Siddhartha's like, wait, you know, here's an idea. How about I ditch all of this and I become poor? I become a beggar and, and I shed all of my material possessions. I pull up at the stoplight and instead of pulling out 10 bucks, I just give away my new Tesla to that panhandler holding the cardboard sign. I go seek out conflict. In fact, I wonder if the more conflict, the better. I mean, Siddhartha did this on purpose. It wasn't like he got laid off as a prince and was like, yeah, huh. Well, I guess I'm going to go try this hermit preacher thing. I'll have a good attitude. I'll make lemonade out of this situation. It'll make for a good plan B. He's like, no, no, no. Plan A is conflict. Yeah, yeah, listen, I got it. This would be a cool plan. I bet he had a, some buddy prince friend that was like, dude, are you cray-cray? Are you crazy? That's your plan? You're going to give all this up? I mean, the women are feeding us grapes today at noon. All the glittery jewels. We're on easy street here, bud. And what comes out of his spiritual journey with all this conflict he pursued? The wonderful teachings called Buddhism. Similar experience with Henry David Thoreau. He intentionally takes two years of intentional conflict. He's like, I'm going to live on the scantiness of fare. I'm going to quarantine myself on purpose to this lake. And why? I mean, what do we get out of it? The literary classic, Walden, Leaves of Grass. The more conflict he rose to meet, the more illumination, just like the sun. One of his quotes is, uh, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. Now that's part of his book, Walden. And like the sun, these collisions of conflict, they lead to illumination, the sunlight, the Buddhism, to literary, literary masterpieces like Walden. The illumination is that we must live in a way that we are singing the song that's within us, no matter the situation, no matter if there's audience. Like, I don't even know who's listening to my podcast. It could very well just be me. But the one matters. We must honor and belt out our songs. Just let it rip. The birds in my backyard, they sing, whether or not I'm on the porch to listen. It's interesting. When I open my slider door, I hear them in song. So they weren't waiting for an audience. They weren't waiting for validation. They weren't waiting for someone to say, wow, I really like how you sing. That's really good. You should do more of that. And then when I close the slider, I still hear them singing. They're not like, oh man, that guy over there, he just doesn't like our song. He just closed the door. That's it. I'm done. They just sing. They just sing. Now that I've done this episode, as I see my conflicts, both unhealthy and healthy, crop up, instead of being so avoidant, I'm becoming more curious. I'm rising more and more to meet them. I'm curious. I may get messy with them sometimes, but I can at least be curious. Minimum. Minimum. If I were to greet them, what illumination might come? So the next time we have a fight with our partner, our relatives, next time we get a complaint call from a tenant, instead of running away from it, run and rise to it. Run and rise to it. When the car breaks down, when the check bounces, when you acquire that company and then it turns out to lose money, when you buy that stock and you lose 40%, when we're just cruising along and someone veers in and cuts us off in our lane of progress and pursuit, we can be curious. We can be eager huh, to meet the conflicts. They can be fun. All right, that's, that's a bit of a stretch there, but I am trying. I'm trying to. With the collision, I know there can be illumination, it won't force itself. Like, I have to look for it. It can be a choice. After throwing up, I'll feel better. The obstacle 
isn't to be avoided. It's actually shown up as the intended path through, as beautifully described in that book by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way. Now, if we don't rise to the conflict, if we avoid the obstacle instead of meeting it, then it's kind of like that famous letter that Edward Burke, when, that he wrote to Thomas Mercer. The only, th- the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. What if Martin Luther King did nothing? And millions of people were living under economic and racial segregative suppression. What if Gandhi did nothing? What if Nelson Mandela, what if he chose to tap out? It's just so uncomfortable. Come on, come on, 27 years in prison? I mean, heck, what are conflicts that you've solved in the past? Things you never thought you'd get through, but you did. You did. And what if you hadn't? You know, think about how different your life would be. It may be tumultuous. We may be getting treated unfairly, you know, even though we're in the right. But if we do nothing, you know, conflict triumphs, evil triumphs. And if Gandhi's right, right, like Gandhi, he embraced the nuclear fusion in his invisible world, you know. And if our most formidable opponent is ourself in our invisible world, we must come out and meet it. When in a swirling, unhealthy conflict, during the sweaty fever of pain, I take double doses of what Thich Nhat Hanh, the Eastern spiritual teacher, said. He said, to love our enemy is impossible. The moment we understand our enemy, we feel compassion towards them. And then they are no longer our enemy. Yeah. Understand our enemy, especially when it's ourselves in our invisible world. Why is there jealousy there? Why, why are you there, anger? Why, why the worry? Why the depression? Greet it. Please, please come in, sit down, you know, have a drink. What do you want me to see? We must have a room for joy and sorrow. We must be in moderated yin-yang balance. Okay. What if after everything you've done, you still have conflict? And by the way, we will. So here's some things we can do. We can get deep in our heart. We can have peace with the non-peace. Like Nelson Mandela said, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the creation of an environment where all can flourish. See, peace is a space for coexistence. There's space for, listen, I just want to kick your teeth in, right? Or I'm really scared. I'm depressed. A place for excitement and hope. A place for faith. We have a bed and our invisible house for everybody. And when do we suffer? Well, we suffer when we don't acknowledge and have awareness of these weary, tired travelers banging on the door of our souls. Let me in! Let me in! They just want to be seen and heard, no longer ignored. Come on in, anger. You're welcome here. It doesn't mean we will retaliate on someone in the visible world. But come. The sun sheds its starlight on all travelers. You see me. You see how angry I am, right? Yes, I see you. Listen. Hey, here's what we're going to do about it. We embrace the Taoist principle of yin-yang. We have depression, but we also make space for faith. We have joy, and we also make space for disappointment. And while unpacking any conflict, we can remember these three options. We can either change it, accept it, or leave the situation. We may not trust them again. You may have new boundaries, but hey, I forgive because forgiveness is love to me. It's a gift towards me so I can have peace. Next time someone yells at you, falsely accuses you, despitefully uses you, takes this or that without asking, lays you off, gives you bad medical news, avoids being your friend, whatever, big or small, let's ask ourselves the following. See the conflict. See the conflict and say, hey, come on in. I've been waiting for you. I have a room for you over here. We can find greater illumination with this collision. Like Jim Rohn, you know, he used to say, don't ask for it to be easier, but 
Wish that you were stronger. Don't wish for less problems. Wish that you can make more solutions. All right, let's wrap up today's episode. Let's wrap this baby up. All right, so peace, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's seeing, accepting, and living with your non-peace, having harmony with the non-peace. If you are only going to remember one thing from this whole episode today, one thing, it's this from Eckhart Tolle. Right? He said, forgive yourself for not being at peace. The moment you completely accept your non-peace, your non-peace is transmuted into peace. Anything you accept fully will get you there, will take you into peace. And this is the miracle of surrender. Wow, Eckert, that's a mic drop, my friend, mic drop. So let's take the lesson from the nuclear fusion happening on the sun. Look out your window. Next time you see the sun, you see its beautiful glow, so nice and cute. Remember, the whole reason it shines in the first place is because of the repeated wild, volatile nuclear collisions. Because of the conflict, it illuminates. It shines the path, just like our conflicts can illuminate and guide us if we let them. Remember, 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 take a chance on yourself today because the world needs who you are meant to be. So be it. <laughs>